welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts, Karen and Kathy. Today, we are discussing episode 22 of the Tang Dynasty drama, The Longest Day in Chang'an. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or else email us at karenandkathy at chasingdramas.com. As always, this podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. Additionally, we reference translations from what is provided online and we will also provide our own to supplement. For this podcast episode, we will start with an episode recap, move on to a couple of book differences, and then close out with history. In episode 21, which is the last episode, Yu Chang comes in and murders 21 of the church priests and also try to kill the mercenaries Long Bo sent to eliminate Yu Cha. However, Yu Chang was captured by Zhang Xiaojing. I mean, girl, you've already lost to him like twice. Why are you trying again? <laughs> Episode 22 starts off with our friend Yi Si greeting soldiers. Apparently, this Yi Si has a cordial relationship with General Guo since he, Yi Si, has talked scripture with the emperor in the past. To me, that was quite surprising and showed that Yi Si had some powerful allies, which ties back to the history that we discussed about Yi Si in the last episode too. Soldiers arrive on behalf of General Guo to investigate what happened. It is here that Yu Chang, tied up and unconscious, is escorted with Tan Qi in a carriage back to Jing Si, while Zhang Xiaojing hunts for clues from the mercenary group that was sent to attack Yu Cha. Speaking of General Guo, He, as a eunuch in the palace, has been tasked by the emperor to give an oral edict to the right chancellor, who is getting ready to head to the palace for the evening's festivities. Finally. Note, the right chancellor is now changed into a purple frock, which signifies his rank of someone of the third rank and above. The conversation between General Guo and... The right chancellor is quite interesting because the right chancellor frankly explains to General Guo why the emperor sent him on this errand. The emperor wants to see whether or not the general will help the crown prince or he will help the right chancellor. The fact that the right chancellor was able to pick up on this once again shows how intelligent the right chancellor is. General Guo, in an earlier episode, told Li Bi about how the emperor has hidden meanings behind his edicts generally. You can never just take what the emperor says as is. I personally do not believe that General Guo didn't know what the emperor's purpose was when he sent General Guo to send this message, but General Guo was just playing dumb in front of the right chancellor. The right chancellor also shows how acute he is in noticing the emperor's true meaning. Sure enough, as General Guo leaves the right chancellor's residence, he instructs a eunuch to capture He Fu, He Zhizheng's adopted son, and stresses that He Fu did all of this on his own. Clearly, General Guo has made a decision and is trying to protect the crown prince from having any relation to today's events. At this point, 
He Fu has been escorted to meet Long Bo. He Fu here is shown to be a revenge-hungry man who does not care for the fact that Yu Chang may have been captured while Long Bo is waiting to see if she can be rescued. The meeting between these two shows quite a stark difference in behavior and stance. Long Bo points out that He Fu's current behavior is no different from that of his enemies. A statement He Fu plainly just ignores. He Fu here is blinded by his anguish and eagerness for revenge against the right chancellor to see that Long Bo might have other plans. He Fu is over here saying, "Wow." She is just a mercenary. You knew that they would all be killed anyways. Why spend the time? I am the one paying for all of this, so you need to listen to me. Long Bo and He Fu have a kind of stare down, and He Fu is the one who acquiesces or finally relents because, I mean, you He Fu are walking into your old residence in which you're like the only one there of your quote unquote group. Everyone else is firmly. In the camp of Longbo, so you making all these grand statements and just saying, "Oh, I'm paying you for this," does not go over well with anybody. Anyways, back at Jing'anxi, Li Bi, Yao Runong, and Xu Bin are now trying to figure out what to do with Yu Chang. They deduce that this woman must be closely connected to Longbo after recalling the events of the day, and Li Bi decides to ask for Longbo's whereabouts. As Longbo seems to be the one major thread behind today's events, Yao Ruoneng is instructed to recall all previous officials or currently on holiday officials back to Jing'anxi to aid Xu Bin in finding out who paid the mercenaries for today's events to get more leads on this Longbo. You will notice that Li Bi, someone who has. No military background is insisting that he questions Yu Chang. I can only imagine that he is doing so in order to protect He Zhizheng. He already knows that He Fu is involved in tonight's activities, and he's trying to make sure that whatever Yu Chang says does not directly connect He Zhizheng to these events, or at least he's trying to protect the He family. That is why he doesn't want Xu Bin or Yao Zhuneng in the room when. Yu Chang wakes up. The problem is with Yu Chang now in custody at Jing'anxi. We know that can't be good news. We hear multiple times that security at Jing'anxi is too weak, with no military or security presence of their own since the Liu Binjun has ditched. Additionally, Zhang Xiaojing, the capable fighter, is no longer at Jing'anxi because he was actually banned from stepping foot in Jing'anxi. Han Xi was also instructed by Li Bi to head over to aid Jing Anxi. So the people who are left really are Yao Zhuneng, Xu Bin, and Li Bi. Interestingly, though, Cui Qi is stationed as a right cavalry soldier. I'm assuming because of all the mishaps that happened today. But the right cavalry is outside of Jing Anxi, not inside. So whatever happens inside those walls is still not under the right cavalry's purview. Additionally, we follow a court official who worked at Jing'anxi but is now enjoying the streets with his wife after they were disbanded, so to speak. His wife seems to have some family connections and wants them to head over to Luoyang tonight in search of stability rather than stay in Chang'an. 
as they are shopping, the wife comments on the troubles that are befalling the capital. She wants to buy a green stoned hairpin to wear when she goes playing squash and on horseback, but it seems like these aren't available at the vendor they were speaking to. Instead, he presents her with some lotus flower hairpins, which is something that is quite interesting because he notes that Yan Taijin is a Taoist priestess, but was still able to capture the attention and love of the emperor. This comment doesn't necessarily bode well for the wife because then she goes on about how, you know, that green stone that she wants, you know who has them? Well, Yan Taijin's sister. Through these small snippets of conversation, we are getting more and more information about Yan Taijin and the potential problems she poses for the empire. Shortly after, this man and other members of Jing Anzi hear the drumbeats that start over the city, which is a call for them to return back to work. What is most touching, in my opinion, here is that this is someone who is clearly not the main character, but he heads back to work on this holiday evening because, as he states, he wants to do something worthwhile that he can talk about in the future and also be able to live up and match his wife. He heads back to work. Are you feeling any foreboding here? If only he had gotten in that carriage tonight and left town like his wife suggested. The episode closes with the right chancellor hearing the drum beats and deciding to give orders to recall the right cavalry. He doesn't want the right cavalry to stay and seem like they're trying to curry favor for accolades. But we know that this will be disastrous. And it's interesting that this is his, the right chancellor's thought process. Longbo, with the help of the messenger Lu San, is gathering his men to conduct a rescue operation for Yu Chang. I wonder if Li Bi thought about this because this was his, I would say, um, calculation to recall everybody. And he said, yeah, I know that people will understand what is being said or stated via the transmissions. So uh, we'll see what happens in the next episode. But mm, was this the right call? He Fu now is greatly displeased at seeing Long Bo trying to save Yu Chang because this means for him that his one chance at killing the right chancellor probably will be turning to dust and angrily states that these men will no longer be paid for their services. Oof, that was not the right call to make, Mr. He Fu. We are heading to the halfway point of the drama. In the book, He Fu's involvement in today's events aren't revealed until literally the very end. The scenes between He Fu and Long Bo are not shown in the book, and He Fu's reveal as the mastermind behind everything is the aha moment at the end. Unlike in the drama where I don't know how General Guo was able to figure out that He Fu was the mastermind, and the scene where Li Bi is almost killed by He Fu is not in the book. The drama definitely does spend a little bit more time fleshing out the various characters, including Hua Fu. Additionally, there isn't much focus on the internal turmoil for Cui Qi, where we see time and again in the drama how he wants to live up to his brother's expectations to live in Chang'an. 
The scenes with the court official and his wife were also new in the drama to add more foreboding for what comes next. Let's move on to some history then, shall we? In the drama, He Fu describes the pavilion where he and Long Bo are standing. What he describes in the drama is called a rainfall pavilion. During the Tang Dynasty, architects and builders were able to successfully build a system to pump water to the top of a pavilion or building and then have that water flow down to the ground via the eaves of the roof to create a rain-like effect. During the summer, this would create a cooling mechanism for those in the building, essentially an air conditioner to stay cool. The rich and powerful built these rainfall pavilions during the Tang Dynasty, so for He Fu's father to have built one in his residence was not entirely surprising. In the palace, there was a rainfall palace, or Dian that was powered by a water wheel to pump the water up to the top of the palace to have the water then fall from the eaves. The poet Li Bai actually wrote at least two poems either at this rainfall palace or about it. But when I'm hearing about this, this is the first time I'm hearing about this type of pavilion. I'm like, dang, great job for Tang Dynasty engineering, but also Tang Dynasty opulence. Let's now take a detour to the lovely shopping trip with the Jing'an Si official An Zhu Guo and his wife, because finally we see quote-unquote normal people who aren't running around trying to save Chang'an. My real question about this is that I feel like if this happened today in New York City or whatever, or any major city, the city would have been shut down and would have been worldwide news immediately that you had terrorists coming into your city. I... Don't know if it's just that information doesn't travel quickly enough or people just choose to be naive or the book and drama are being too theatrical with the blindness of the citizens. This for me is just like, wow, you've seen so much death and destruction. How are you still going out (laughs) and going shopping? I would be so traumatized by everything that's happened today. I mean, take a look at Xu Hezi's brother. His hand got stabbed earlier in the day. And he's over there still beating a drum, so, you know. (laughs) Well, this couple is out shopping for trinkets, and let's just say that the shopkeeper has quite a lot of good wares in his collection. On the left of the shopkeeper's table, or the right of Anzhu Guo, dangles a hanging ball-like structure. It's a replica of the Putao Huaniao Wenyin Xiangnang, or grape flowers and birds silver sachet that was unearthed near Xi'an in 1970. It is an intricately made ornament that has the grape flowers and birds engraved. I don't know if engraved is the word, but the outside frame has the engravings that is then supported by two circular axles, and then inside is a sphere that can hold perhaps a perfume or flowers. Hence why, it, in Chinese, is still called a xiangnang or a sachet. Honestly, it kind of reminds me of a snitch from Harry Potter, but with extra layers on the outside. The original is currently in the Shanxi History Museum, and based on photos, the craftsmanship is exquisite. Honestly, when I saw that, I was like, 
man, this was made over 1,500 years ago. Uh, not 1,500 years ago, 1,300 years ago. That is incredible. Next in this shop, let's focus on two more Liu Li items. The first is the glass-like goblet that An Zhu Guo picks up to examine. We've talked about these previously, but these glass cups were also unearthed near Xi'an in the 20th century and dated to come from the Tang Dynasty. As we mentioned before, much of these glass goblets and drinkware were imported from neighboring kingdoms and empires via the Silk Road. An Zhuguo then also picks up a white glass pitcher, which was based off of something called the Liu Li Hu Ping, or the glass foreign pitcher. An original, which is currently housed in Nara in Japan, also dates back to the Tang Dynasty and was imported from the Sanzanian Empire. Moving on, An Guo's wife states that she wants something called a se se shi for her hair accessories. And these aren't cheap. According to her, one is worth 1,000 tian. And she heard that Lady Yan Taijin's older sister, the now Lady Guo Guo, paid her construction workers 20,000 tian and three bags of these se se shi. The YouTube translation says 20 kilos. We're just going to assume three bags. Se se shi is not something that is used in the modern Chinese language. When I heard this in the drama the first time, I was like, I have no idea what this is. However, in the book of Zhou written in 636, which is a history of the Western Wei and Northern Zhou dynasties of China around the 5th and 6th centuries AD, it states that the se se shi are green colored gems, not jade, because jade is easy enough with the name of yu. We can probably infer that these se se shi probably meant gems such as emeralds or else chalcedony and its varieties such as chiroprase. The YouTube translation calls it emeralds. I don't know if it is exactly emeralds, but you can just imagine some very valuable green gem. As for Anju Guo's wife, this is the only time we'll see her on screen, but I do want to highlight her costume. It essentially combines the different styles that we've seen from the ladies such as Tan Qi, Wen Zhen, and Xu Hezi. Anju Guo's wife has the comb on her hair. She has the red Hua Dian on her forehead. However, everything is less quote-unquote formal than what we saw for Tan Qi's makeup a few episodes ago. It is also more formal than Wen Ren's makeup and dress as it does fit her role of the wife of an official, even if he is not as high-ranking. And lastly, in this episode, Li Bi chooses to use the watchtowers to send a message to gather the officials from Jing Anzi back to continue the investigation. He chooses the Zhen Gua from Yi Jing, the Chinese Book of Divination. Zhen Gua is the 51st hexagram and represents shake. We're going to go a little deep into the hexagram. The shape for shake or Jin includes six lines or yao. Of the six, there's two groups. For shake, two of the same trigrams, which include two lines of two dashes 
and then one long line or dash comprised of the two trigrams for shake. The two dashes represent yin, and the long dash or line represent yang. Now, each line or yao for the hexagram, as a reminder, that's six lines, has a different meaning. Li Bi orders the watchtower to show the third yao, which is the third yin, to be transmitted. I was looking at the description of the hexagram, and this third yin is actually the fourth line. So it's the fourth yao, but the third instance of yin in the hexagram. So I'm not quite sure why it's considered the third yao or line. I was doing a little bit of digging. Yes, the third yin is the third yao. So if someone here is a yi jing expert, let me know because that would be helpful. <laughs> Anyways, the third yin for the shake hexagram or jin gua represents, as we hear in the drama, jin su su, jin xing wu sheng, or the thunder has gone and it's time for reawakening. Because the su here means su xing, or to reawaken. The members of Jing An Si hear the drums and see the transmission and automatically understand its meaning. Most, if not all, return to Jing An Si after hearing or seeing this new transmission. Honestly, being an official isn't easy. They also need to know divination. How would I know immediately that, you know what? Based on this, I'm looking at the third yin of this shake hexagram to say, you know what, this means jin su su, jin xing wu sheng. Ugh. Being an official is not easy, and uh, let's just say we don't know if it was the right choice to return, and we'll see that in the next podcast episode. Well, that closes out our discussion of episode 22 of The Longest Day in Chang'an. The music for this episode is Qingping Yue, played by Karen, with sheet music by Cui Jianghui. If you're looking for sites to watch dramas and you're in the U.S., head on over to our sponsor, Jubao TV. That's J-U-B-A-O TV. It's a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch. They've launched on Sling TV, and you can also stream it through the website, Jumo, the platform, Plex, or else access it on TV if you have Xfinity or Cox Contour. Again, all of this is free. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you all in the next podcast episode.